take out your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3 tonight. We hope and pray that we'll be able to finish the chapter. We'll pick up in verse 25. And the power of the cross. The power of the cross. As you think on that thought for a moment, think of all the power sources that you can imagine in this world. And uh, I I was reading, finished while we were away, I I finished uh, Killing the Rising Sun. And while that's a sensitive subject, it, it covers the United States' entry into the nuclear age and, of course, this terrible power of the atomic weapon. And for those of you that know the basic history behind it, uh, it was largely believed that the United States, as General MacArthur, was plotting a plan uh, to invade mainland Japan near the end of the Second World War, that that invasion may have cost as many as a million U.S. lives and maybe as many as two million Japanese lives. Emperor Hirohito had put together a plan basically to not spare anyone who was a male. They lived by the Bushido Code, and that code said it would be better to die uh, than to live uh, without your honor. And so the United States believed, um, be it right or wrong, and I'm not here to politicize the decision, but simply to say, that there in Los Alamos, New Mexico, a group of scientists under the guidance of Dr. Robert Oppenheimer uh, concocted the ability to split the atom. And they put together two very small nuclear weapons, little known. They actually put together a third one. There was really a third bomb that was shipped uh, to the island of Saipan that would have been dropped had the Japanese not surrendered. But no one believed on the Japanese mainland that the United States was going to do anything like invade Japan. And so when those bombs were dropped, little man and fat boy, as the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, so many hundreds of thousands of lives lost, that was an immense amount of power delivered really initially in nanoseconds. Can I tell you that the power of the cross is so far exceeding the power of the atomic weapon that they can't even be spoken of in the same sentence? Because it does something that no power that we know of could ever do. It made right sinful man and righteous God. And so tonight, verse 25, would you join with me in the power of the cross? Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray now that as we read and hear it, that it would speak into our lives. We pray that we would know the power of the cross in our own lives, God, that we would never be tempted to place our faith and our hope and trust in anything save the cross of Christ, the power of God unto salvation to them who believe. And so, Lord, we ask that you would now bless us as we read it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 25 here in Romans 3, and it begins by remembering the question, the great question, how can a man be saved? The answer is, of course, the cross, and here comes the description of it. Whom God set forth, whom is that whom? It's Jesus. God set him forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, in God's passing over, in God's amazing ability to not judge Jeff, 
in what God did my whole life until I surrendered to Jesus, every time I sinned, I added another thing to the weight that was hanging over my head that had the capacity to crush my life eternally. And every time I added to it, God passed over those things. And if you're here tonight and you do not know Christ to this moment, every single sin that you have ever committed is currently hanging over your head. But there is a price, that propitiation, that God will pay if you'll allow him to apply the blood of Christ through the cross of Christ to your life. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier. God cannot and has not ever passed over any sin to the sense that he made it no longer in existence. All sin has to be punished. The question is, will it be punished and taken care of by you? Or will it be punished and taken care of by Christ? That's the question. Every one of God is perfectly just. And it says he is also the justifier, the one by whom we can be made just with God, right with God. He is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's not the justifier of the one who has faith in religion. He's not the justifier of the one who has faith in faith. He's not the justifier of the one who thinks he can work his way to heaven. He is the justifier only of the one who accepts the way and the truth and the life, Jesus Christ. The only name under heaven whereby man may be saved. So where is the boasting then? Is it excluded? By what law? Of works? No. By the law of faith. And therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. This incredible picture that is so difficult to understand at times. Because our natural assumption is if we're justified by faith, then, then what purpose is the law? Why is the law even still needed? And from a Jewish perspective, is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Is there more than one God? Is there some other way? The questions swirl through our minds. And Paul answers the question, yes, he's the God of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith. And notice this, the uncircumcised by faith. The one way, the one truth, the one life, and the only one that can ever pay the price for our sin. Faith in Christ Jesus is Lord. Do we then make void through the law faith? Certainly not. But on the contrary, 
we establish the law. You see, from the right biblical perspective, the cross answers all these questions. From the wrong biblical perspective, you you can almost come to some wrong conclusions. But maybe there's some other way. Was there a Jewish way in the Old Testament? Was there a Gentile way in the New Testament? The thoughts that come through people's minds. You, You mean everyone who perished before Jesus died without faith? Of course, that's absolutely not true. The book of Hebrews answers that question for us. You see, the cross of Christ has affected the entirety of all that is this world. And those affects, those things that have happened, are numerous. And they're really easy to discern. The cross of Christ has affected has borne weight on those who trust Jesus. The cross of Christ has actually given you eternal life. No cross, no eternal life. Christ doesn't die for our sins. We can't do it ourselves. The affectation, the thing that was done for you, that seals your eternity with God, was Jesus on Calvary's cross. The cross of Christ affected Satan. And I love this. Oh, death, where is your sting? Grave, where's your victory? When Jesus said it is finished, it was actually Satan that was finished. He doesn't know it yet. done breaking the powers dominion because we can now be free he who the son has set free is free indeed amen we're not kind of sort of free we're completely free from sin and its penalty death eternally no way bomb can do that no supernova is ever going to accomplish that No twin galaxies crashing into each other and exploding in a burst of galactic light can ever accomplish that feat. A simple wooden cross with the Son of God nailed to it accomplished that. The cross of Christ affected Jesus himself. It it poured out upon Jesus God's wrath. He suffered in, in extreme agony. It produced the suffering that God said actually pleased him because in bruising his own son, we were made sons and daughters of the light. We were redeemed by what happened to Jesus. That's the power of the cross, family. Don't take the cross of Christ lightly. We sometimes almost think, well, it's just jewelry, it's a symbol. It's nice. I like it at Easter. The cross of Christ is the most powerful instrument that's ever existed on this earth. The cross of Christ affected the whole of the Trinity. 
God lost his only son. Jesus died. He had to watch as his son ride the agony. The Holy Spirit that had come upon Jesus was now affected by the weight of the sins of all of mankind. And Christ himself cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Father God, why have you forsaken me? There are some revelations that come to us from the cross. And one of them is God's absolute righteousness. Why was this? Verse 25 says it was to demonstrate his righteousness. Why was it? It was to demonstrate God's righteousness. God is perfect. He is just. And he can be no other way. God doesn't have an alternate way to be. Now let me explain this to you in case you've ever wondered these things. You see, you can be two-faced. And so can I. We can be one thing at church and a whole other thing at home. You can be super holy when you're here and you can be absolutely out of your mind in sin somewhere else. But God can't do that. He is perfect 100% of the time. And so if his demand is perfect righteousness for us to be in his presence, he must be the one who is still just and also the one who makes us just before him. Otherwise, we can't be with him. He has to be both. And so the cross demonstrates God's righteousness. If you look at ethnology or the history of religion, peoples and religion together, pagan gods were almost always simply uh, exalted attributes of humankind. Sometimes they were just larger than life characters and very often they actually contained human faults. They got angry, they got mad, they kind of messed with people. They didn't like you, they could kind of zap you. The Roman pantheon, the Greek pantheon of God, you didn't want to run into Zeus. You didn't want to run into Poseidon. You never knew what you were going to get. They could be one thing one day and something else the next. They could get battling back and forth. And furthermore, they were quite often actually immoral. That is not God. That is man making God in his own image. God is God. And he has always been himself. You see, sometimes we confuse our understanding or mankind's understanding of rightness. In other words, it's just right with us. It's just right with us, folks. And we go, well, that's righteousness. Oh, no, it's not. Because there's a lot of things that we as people declare right and it's not right with God. How about abortion? Not right with God. How about fornication? Not right with God. How about divorce? It's legal. Still not okay with God. He hates it. 
Don't confuse rightness with righteousness. Rightness is what we think about something. Righteousness is what God thinks about something. And those are two different things most of the time. God is perfectly righteous. You won't ever get to heaven and and have God stand there. You know, Jeff, I was just thinking about this whole list of things that I gave you in Scripture. And, you know, I'm taking back a few of those things. I'm kind of sorry I deprived you of those sins. But, you know, I just felt like it at the time. Though when we see God... The things that he said to Adam and Eve are the same things that are still going to be good when we get there. He's perfect in his righteousness. His justice, his grace. They're infinitely grander than our ability to understand them. And so because of his perfect justice, no sin will ever go unpunished. And because of his perfect grace, no sin is beyond his forgiveness. Hallelujah. Amen. So no matter what your gig is, no matter what your problem is, no matter where you've been, what you've done, where you might go later, you can't outrun the grace of God. But you have to receive it because only He is the just and only He is the justifier. And so in that sense, you you can't escape it. So every form of sin... Every form of sin will never go unpunished. And so it can either be paid by you or me, the sinner, ourselves, or it can be paid for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. God demonstrated that for us. What does he say? In his forbearance. He says, I'm not going to extract the price that you owe me. You see, tonight, if you're without Christ, you owe God. If you're in Christ, your debt has been paid. Do you get the difference? If you're here tonight and you don't know Christ, you owe God. Big time. For every sin you've ever committed. And by the way, that means his perfect mark, his perfect righteousness. Everything you've ever done that is not in line with his perfection You owe God a debt for that. That's actually generally what happens to us when we come to faith in Christ. I recognize, man, I'm in trouble. And I need Christ. You see, because of his forbearance, he says, I'm not going to take the payment right now from you. I'm not going to, like we say sometimes, you need to get that squared away, son, or I'm going to take it out of your hide. I know that's a little antiquated. It kind of was back in the 50s and 60s. And if you say that today, you can go to jail. But that was kind of what they used to say back when, I, you know, the, the rod of correction to the seed of knowledge usually did something. <laughs> It'd be extracted out of you. Here's the problem. Here's the payment. You know, I lived in the day and age when you went in to see the principal. And there on the wall was the holy paddle. They usually didn't have to beat you with it that much. You just looked at it and said, that's going to hurt. Now think that God has a holy paddle in heaven. And it's just sitting there. 
The word of God tells you that paddle exists. And in God's forbearance, he never in Christ takes it off the wall. He beats his son instead. That's what happened. He spanked Jesus for you. Jesus took your swats. God's absolute righteousness is perfect grace. That grace is exalted at the cross, and I love this. Where then is the boasting, it says in verse 27? It is excluded. You can't boast about your own self. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by faith, the law of faith. Where we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Family of God, every man-made religion has some basis in you doing something for God or the gods. And if you're a Hindu, you're really in trouble because they have thousands of gods. And you need to take care of all of them. Now, I don't know how many of you carry around, you know, a notepad or if you have your smartphone, you pull it out and you use the little to-do list thing or you make notes to yourself. Imagine for a moment that every time you do something that's not right with God, forget that it's not okay with, with people here on earth. It's not anything that's not right with God, that's just, okay? Anything that vertically is not okay with God, you jot that down. little test for you, do this tomorrow. Start writing down everything that you do, think, or say that's not okay with God. So on the freeway, pull over before you start writing. (laughs) And that person, and that person, all those thoughts that dart through your head. How many things do you think you'd have down on a piece of paper by the end of one day? We're deforesting every forest on earth, right? Because remember, the standard is right with God. Not what's okay with you, not what's okay with the laws of the land, not what's okay with your friends and neighbors, what's okay with God. God's grace is apart from you understanding how to fix all those things. Or do anything about those things. Or going around and trying to make every one of those things right in your own way. You see, saving faith and grace is apart from anything you can do. All of those things you would write down, you could never figure out a way to make all of them okay. If you wrote down a list of tomorrow, it would take you the rest of your days to clear up your tomorrow. And you probably still wouldn't make it because you'd get so tired of it, you'd probably swear or something at the end of it. Then you'd have to start all over again. It's apart from all of the works that you could do. Let's look at some of those things that we could really say, look, we, we kind of have our little proofs in our lives, don't Do you guys have those things? You ever thought, well, you know, I'm okay with God because? Let's run through some of those things, shall we? 
I'm okay with God because you're here tonight and you think you're okay with God because. This is the most common thing I run into when I'm sharing with people who don't know the Lord who have a problem with the fact that I'm a pastor. They will normally give me their conclusive list of why they're okay already with God and they don't need Jesus. Why they don't need the cross of Christ. Here's a few I jotted down. Visible morality. Well, I'm a moral person. I'm, of course, okay, because I'm more moral than you, generally, is their comparison. A person that trusts their outward ability to be better than most everyone else. Can I tell you, some of the most moral people are Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus. But I can also tell you, that doesn't take care of your heart. Outward morality has no bearing on whatsoever as to whether you're actually saved or not. You will become more outwardly moral if you are saved. But you can't be outwardly moral enough to be saved. A second thing, intellectual knowledge of God's truth. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who are unbelievers that can quote more Bible than believers. If you don't believe that, read some blogs. It's like 75 scriptures, and they're all out of context. But they know the Word of God. They just don't know what it means. And they haven't yielded to what God's trying to get at when it says that the Word of God reveals to us our own unrighteousness. Not how good we can be by keeping the law. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We actually get to understand the the Word of God by being saved. It's not the other way around. Religious involvement. I can't tell you how many people come to me. Well, I go to church. That's their answer. I ask them, how do you know that you know Jesus? I go to church. That's their answer. Going to church does not save you. Did you know that? You can go to church your whole life and still perish. It's the cross of Christ that saves you. It's the blood of Jesus Christ shed on that cross that washes away your sin. Amen? It's not religion. It's not coming here. You don't get saved because you come here. You get saved because Jesus came here and died for you. And you believe on his name. It's not religious activity. A fourth thing, and I love this, and I will tell you, you can be in ministry your whole life and still not be a believer. You can be in the business of religion and still not be saved unless you know Jesus Christ is your own personal Lord and Savior. So it's not religious activity. How about conviction of sin? Well, I feel bad about stuff. My children feel, felt bad about stuff, but they were still sinners. I feel bad about that, Dad. doesn't save you to just simply feel bad about sin. It may be a sign that you're being convicted, but feeling bad about something does not make you right with God. 
It's a step. It can lead you the right direction. Number six, I really love this one. I feel like I'm saved. That is like the so this millennium thing. Well, I feel like I'm saved. I feel like I have a million dollars in the bank. And the check I wrote you came from that feeling. You get the point? You can feel about a lot of things. It doesn't mean it's so. Feelings mean nothing sometimes. I've had good feelings. I've had bad feelings. I've had feelings I didn't think were right that ended up being right and feelings I thought were dead wrong that ended up being right. You see, feelings don't prove that you're one of God's kids. Even those people who say, well, I made a decision. If the decision you made didn't result in godly living then you need to make sure whether you made the right decision or not. Because if you decided to follow Jesus and you say you're following him and the results of that is that you would walk in the spirit not fulfill the lust of the flesh and all you do is fulfill the lust of the flesh, then your decision might have been a decision that wasn't the right decision. So make sure you made a right decision. It's the cross of Christ. It's believing the right things about the right one that brings us into the right relationship. There are some reliable proofs. There are some things that you can really lean on. The first of which is a real love for God. You see, people without Christ really don't love God. They love lots of things, but generally speaking, it's not God that they love. Most often the substitute is themselves. I love me. When you love God, that's from God. We know that we love him because he first loved us. You get it? That love came from him. The reason that you love him is because he first loved you. A second thing. It's repentance. Can I tell you that repentance is not recognition that you were wrong? Repentance is recognizing you were wrong and then doing something about it. The word actually means to turn around and go the other direction is the easiest way to understand it. Repentance is, I was wrong about this, God. I agree with you and what I was doing before. Not only am I going to stop doing that, but I'm going to go the other way, which is the direction I'm supposed to be going. That's repentance. But continuing to try and justify why you were going the other direction, that's not repentance. Repentance is a sign. True, genuine desire to go the other way, however imperfectly. Praise God, the word imperfectly is in our vocabulary as believers, amen? I thank God for that word because I'm not perfect. I know one day I am going to be perfect because my Bible says so. But it's not while I'm here. It's when I get there. Amen? You see, every believer should hate sin. Even when you're doing it. 
And you know what I'm saying. You've been engaged in those things, and you know the Holy Spirit's going, Jeff, you are so wrong right now. And I'm going, I know, but I'm struggling. You see, when the Holy Spirit's that active in your life, and God's going, stop it. And you're going, I know, but I am, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. And you genuinely have that sense. There's real wrong that's happening here. You know you're displeasing to God. That's a good thing. How about genuine humility? (laughs) Pretty safe to say we live in a world where humility is a hard thing to come by, amen? It's not natural to mankind. Boastful, pride, arrogance, yeah, we got that by the boatloads. Humility, not so much. A truly humble person, a person that wants to exalt others above themselves, that's a God thing. That in their heart they know that that person, I'm supposed to esteem them more highly than I think of myself. That's a God thing. Caring for people is a God thing. Devotion to God's glory. <laughs> Another thing that's pretty hard to come by in our, in our world, amen? There's devotion to all kinds of glory. Every sporting event that you can watch is generally a testimony to someone else's glory other than God's, amen? But then every once in a while, matter of fact, it's getting fairly common. You watch somebody just reach up and go, God, that was you. That was you, Lord. You gave me that skill. You gave me that talent. The reason I can do this is because you in me. Dedication to God's glory. I love it when when professional athletes on the world stage stand up there and say, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, my Savior. That's God's glory. That's not your own glory. That's God's glory. That's what you're saying. When somebody asks you why you're no longer a drug addict or why you're no longer in that relationship or why you're no longer a liar or a cheat or a thief or whatever, and you say, because Christ changed me, that's God's glory. We're to be about God's glory. Prayer. You actually know you need to talk to God. Not just you want to when you're in trouble, but you can't leave the house without talking to God. You can't do your job without talking to God. You can't minister your family without first seeking what God wants to say to them through you. True prayer. Real prayer. How about selfless love? And that's not just for God, that's for other people. By this all men will know that we are his disciples if we have love one for another, right? Not just for ourselves. That's a different kind of love. Paul was right in talking about marriage. I love me. I got a box of dark chocolate-covered macadamia nuts in the back. You know what? Y'all can't have none. Because they're gone. Somebody beat me to it. Because I love me. Those taste good. And I'm like, I put paper over the top of them. 
Oh, they're not really there. Lift up the box. I love me. And you love you. But man, when you genuinely love somebody else and you want the very best, anything, you, you want more for them than you do, that's God. That's selfless love. How about separation from the world? Man, anybody else want to go home? Oh, Lord. I didn't think I was going to make it through this week. I was like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Can we go home now? But separation from the world, that means to be set apart or sanctified unto God. The cross does that. Your saving faith does that. God's grace working in you does that. It makes you different than the world. You have different designs and different desires because of what Christ has done in you. That saving faith working in you separates you from this world. This world is not your home. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And you're passing through this world. Your home's up there. And so you get separated from it. You you hang on loosely to the things of this life. There's lots to like about being here. There's, there's some things that are even lovely about being here, but nothing compared to there. So why would you hang on to a world that can't satisfy? That's why we are not to love the things of the world. The lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, all those things are passing away. But he who does the will of the Father, he abides forever. She abides forever. We abide forever. We let go of the things of this world, recognizing that this world is not our home. Hallelujah. And how about obedient living? Anybody in here had your life transformed by the renewing of your mind? Amen? You you live differently than you used to live? And it actually comes natural to you? You wake up in the morning, you actually think differently than you used to think? You walk around going, wow, I now know what to do and how to do it to some degree. However imperfectly you may implement those things. The cross does that. Christ does that. Shows us his universal love for everyone. Look, family of God, is there a God for the Jews only? Answer, no. Is there a God for the Gentiles only or a different one? Answer, no. There's one God. In Deuteronomy 6, the, the Jewish people used to wake up in the morning. The Lord, the Lord, thy God is one. There's only one God. And he loves all of us. And he loves us whether we are rich or poor. Or whether we come from a Latino background or a European background or an African background or an Asian background or we have light skin or dark skin. He loves mankind universally, all of us. Amen? No matter what language you speak, no matter what country you live in, that's our God. And he loves us. 
The cross did that. Religion didn't do that. The cross of Christ brought all tribes and tongues and nations together and made us one in Him. That's why there is no Jew and no Gentile. The the two most divergent cultures on the face of the earth were the Jew and the Gentile, and the cross brought them together. Amen? Don't you think he can do that with the rest of us? Of course he can. God's universal love was displayed on Calvary's cross. So much so. You remember the story of Jonah? You remember what Jonah did? Jonah tells him, dude, God's speaking to Jonah. Go to Nineveh. What did, what did Jonah say? I ain't going. They'll get saved. He knew there was one God. And if there's one God that loved everybody and he went there, they'd get saved. And Jesus said, I love you this much. And I want you to love me. So receive that gift. And in doing so, all of the law, all of the law was confirmed. Men have never been saved by any other basis than faith. The law is not useless. It just pointed how bad the problem was. The law was really good at that. So I said before, you look at the Ten Commandments. You will never get through the Ten Commandments and say, did it perfect. Because you already have another God besides him, and that's you, if you think you're perfect. You couldn't keep the ten. Forget the feast days and Levitical law and all of the individual instructions that the rabbis had, had placed upon the Jewish people. Never was the law going to save you. But it could tell you exactly how bad things are. And so it was good for that. You'd start running down the list, go, man, there's got to be some other way I get saved. It's the cross. Oh, the power of the cross. Isaac Watts, that incredible hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but lost and pour out all contempt on my pride. The cross, the power of it. Would you stand with me? Bring the worship team back out. I want to give you an opportunity tonight, if you're here, and maybe as I ran through that list, maybe as you were thinking through those things that I said, you've been trusting, maybe you've been trusting religion or church attendance. Maybe you've been trusting that you're morally good. Maybe you've been trusting in a feeling. Maybe you've been trusting that your parents brought you to church for a long time. But you haven't actually trusted Christ. And you're here tonight.
and you realize that he is both the just one, the one who sets the exact standard that you have to follow, but he's also the justifier, the one who can take care of the debt. And you recognize tonight when I, when I spoke the words of Scripture, God has simply foreborn. He's passed over those things till now. But you still owe him the debt. And if you keep it someday, when you exit this life and step into the next, you're going to have to pay up. And you recognize tonight you can't make that payment. And you want Jesus to make the payment for you. And I'm going to ask that we bow our heads and our hearts. And and believers, you're here tonight and you know Jesus. Be praying right now. But you're here and you want Christ to pay your debt. I'm going to just simply ask you to raise your hand right where you're standing. I'm not going to have you leave your seat. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. I see that hand in the back. I see that hand in the back. Just raise your hand. I'm going to have you pray right where you are. I see that hand in the back. Any others? I see this other hand. There are hands up all over the sanctuary. Praise the Lord. Any others? You, you know tonight, if you were to take your last breath, you're on your way home, that your debt's not been paid. Thank you. I see that hand. Keep them up, please. I'm, I'm going to have you pray right where you're at. I'll pray for you, pray with you. That hand as well. Praise the Lord. Thank you, God, for your goodness. Thank you for these that have raised their hands. Any others? One moment. Just a moment. Those who have just raised your hands, go ahead and put your hands down. And would you just follow me in this simple prayer? Please pray it out loud and believe in your heart and ask God to do for you what you can't do for yourself. Pray with me now. Heavenly Father, I admit that I'm a sinner. And I also know that I need a Savior. And Jesus, I'm inviting you into my life right now. I'm asking you to pay the price for my sin. I realize it's your blood that's cleansed me and made me clean. I'm offering you my life. I'm asking you to be my Lord. I pray that you would write my name in that Lamb's book of life and that you would help me fulfill my commitment to you. Help me to walk all of my days in your ways. And it's in the blessed name of Jesus I pray these things. Amen. Amen. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the family of God. Those that have raised your hands, if you need a Bible, we're going to bring some pastors forward. If you need a Bible, if you'd like to talk to somebody about that decision, we'll have some pastors up front in just a moment. Please come up and and tell somebody. Tell somebody around you of the decision you made. Because Jesus was very specific. If we will confess him before men, he will confess us before the Father. It's an important part. Let somebody know that decision. But if you need a Bible, let us know. We'd love to get you one, some materials to get you started studying. But we're so grateful for you tonight. Because tonight God's kingdom got a little bigger. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for this amazing time tonight. We thank you for Esther, and we thank you for these guys, God, that have come to lead us to your throne. And would you bless them in their ministry? Would you bless us as your people? Thank you, God, for the sustaining grace 
for your amazing grace, for your beautiful grace that's cleansed us and washed us and made us white. Would you seal us, Lord, for your purposes this week? Would you bless us, God, in all that we do and say? We ask these things in the wonderful name of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the great I am, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's worship. God bless you.